copy of the scriptures, I'm going to ask you to turn to the book of Romans, would you? The eighth chapter. Romans 8. The book of Romans is, of course, Paul's magnum opus, his greatest work. It is that which Paul outlines for us here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit with regard to the truth of God and his work in our lives. I'm reading from verse 31 and following of chapter 8. I'll ask you to follow along. This is God's word to us. Paul writes, What then shall we say to these things? God is for us. Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it's written, for your sake... We are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray together as we consider God's word as it will be preached over us. Pray with me, if you would. Our Father and our great God, even now as we come, we recognize that we have nothing to offer. We are a broken people, a needy people, a people desperate for God. You come to us and you promise in the gospel that you will be for us everything that we need in Christ. And so we come in reliance on that Spirit, the Holy Spirit, filling us, changing us, and opening our eyes to see that which is true of you and that which is in your word. Even now I pray, grant to us open eyes, listening ears, and a heart that's soft. And we pray this in the name of Christ, our King who saves us. Amen. His name was Bartu Uran. It sounds foreign to our ears. It is. But he wasn't unlike many living in his Indian village of Jharkhand. He was married. He had a family. He worshipped at the pagan temples. And he was incredibly poor. Looking back, they would remark that they lived in utter poverty, didn't have enough food even for a single meal. And yet they went on. It was a family unlike many of ours, and it was a family over time which was visited with great hardship. One by one, the children of Bartu, Iran, began to die. First, it was the elder sister of the family, and it was the elder brother in the family. Then the youngest of those children lay laid to rest. Grief had visited his family And it was the most pressing and the pointiest 
of all griefs. But God, in his mercy, brought the gospel to that town, and Bartu, Iran, a number of years later, listened and believed. And he bent the knee to the Lord Jesus. He became a Christ follower. That was ten years ago. Some months ago, there in that little town, everything changed for him. The village elders decided that no longer would they have Christians living in their midst. And so gathering up some rabble-rousers, they got a bit of a mob together, and they came down to his house. And they forced him and his wife out. And he said, Will you renounce your faith? Bartu Aran said, No, I won't. I'm a Christian. I love the Lord Jesus. And on the profession of that faith, he took this man and this woman, their middle-aged years, and they marched, marched them down to a small pond there in their village. Bartu's son, Beneswar, was there. He followed quickly, anticipating this will not turn out well for my mother and my dad. And he was right. They asked again as they stood on the edge of that small pond, will you renounce your faith in Christ? Bartu said, I will not. And so then the mob forced them into the pond. The month is January. The waters are frigid. First to their knees, then to their waist, then to their chest, finally to their chins. Their son, Beneswar, an eyewitness, recounts what happens next. I'll quote him. All throughout the night, they were inside that cold water, shivering. Can you even imagine? Can you even imagine? The villagers kept asking my father if he's ready to forsake Christ, and he reiterates every time, I will not deny Christ. I will continue to believe till my final breath. Five o'clock, nine o'clock, midnight, the early morning hours, shivering, cold. Finally, by 10 o'clock the next morning, the villagers, seeing that Bartu and his wife will not be moved from their faith, let them out of the water. Their bodies eventually warmed, but the shock was overwhelming, and Bartu, Iran, went home to be with his Savior that morning, faithful even unto death. Paul writes, and we read, In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. All of us have suffered, haven't we? Suffering is never easy. Although we've never known suffering like this, we've never been pressed to the point where we have to make a proclamation. Will you believe? Will you stay with your faith? It'll cost you, maybe even your life. God is an amazing God. He allows for difficulties in our life, but he never allows us to that point in which he does not supply, by his grace, the strength to get through. Bartuaran knew that. He experienced that. He lived that out in those moments, shivering in the water, thinking to himself, I'm sure, I don't think I can do this. Why does God bring suffering into our lives? Well, because when we suffer, ultimately over time, we learn this glorious fact. There is nothing that can sever the tie of God's love to me. Nothing. Man cannot do it. Hardship cannot do it. Sickness cannot do it. I am Christ's, 
Christ is mine. That's why God allows us to suffer. And ultimately, through the hardship of all these things, ultimately even for Bartu and his wife, they came face to face with this grand reality. In all these things, God is enough. He is enough. In a nutshell, we can stop preaching just here because that is the tenor and the substance of the message. In all these things, God alone is enough. God is speaking to us through these nine verses that we've looked at. And he is saying this to us. I am for you. I am for you. I am not against you. Look at verse 31 as we begin this brief time together. Paul begins this passage with a question, doesn't he? He doesn't have a great statement of faith. He asks a question. What then shall we say to these things? What shall we say to these things? Well, obviously, we would ask if Paul were present with us, and we were reading this letter written to us as the church of the Lord Jesus, what things, Paul, what are you referring to? What things are you referring to? What, what things should you respond to, should we respond to? And I suppose it's all of the eight previous chapters that he's taught. Now, rest easy. We don't have time to go through the first eight chapters of the book of Romans. But there's some glorious, wondrous, deep teaching just here. And when you cut your teeth on this sort of doctrine, in all these things of suffering, he's enough. I just looked through and just, just took a snippet of what the Bible teaches in those first eight chapters. I boiled them down to just six statements. Let me read those for you. Give you a feel of what Paul is asking them, this readers in Rome. What do you say to all these things? Here's some of these important things that Roman teaches us. Just six quick ones, very brief. The first thing the book of Romans teaches us is that God foreknows every detail concerning our lives, and he governs every creature, every action. That's a great comfort, isn't it? Especially when suffering comes to us. My God is behind this. My God knows this. My God is in this. My God is the God of blessing and the God of calamity. Here's the second thing that the book of Romans teaches and that Paul is referring to that our salvation is not a willful enterprise, but a sovereign God chooses us for himself, not in response to anything we are, and not in response to anything we do. That's a fascinating thing, isn't it? Breathtaking thing. God comes and he takes us for his own. He says, you're mine, I have you. It's not based on your will, it's not based on your intellect, it's not your pedigree, it's not your name, it's not your education, it's nothing like that. Not how good you look. You look all very good. Very good. God comes and simply at the pleasure of his will sets his love upon us. I want you. You're mine. It's an incredible, wonderful truth. Here's the third thing. The book of Romans teaches that we have been justified. That's a legal term. You're brought before the judge. Those charges against you are pressing. And ultimately, you're justified. You're declared innocent. We are justified and that the righteousness of Christ is ours. We got this great exchange. Filthiness on our part given to Christ. Righteousness on his part given to us. Why? Why would God give you his righteousness? He loves you. He's called you. He's taken you as his own. It's the teaching of Romans. Here's a fourth quickly. 
that in all this the Holy Spirit is following up with a kind of renewal program. There's a power within you beyond yourself. The Spirit of God rests in you. If you're a Christian, you get it the moment you say, Jesus, take me, I'm yours, save me. And the Spirit fills us. And he's ours. And he starts this renewal program. And bit by bit, day by day, he's changing us. Is it easy? Never. (laughs) Do you have children? It's not easy raising them, is it? You're slowly bringing them along bit by bit, hoping that they will follow in your footsteps. God is doing that with us, that we would be like our elder brother, the Lord Jesus. And all of it is natural, natural. Like a tree producing fruit. It doesn't even think about it. It just pushes out that which is the natural product of what it is by nature. That's the Holy Spirit in us. Amazing. Number five. The book of Romans teaches us that our Heavenly Father causes all things to work for good All things, blessing, calamity, sickness, health, birth, death, all things for our good and his glory. That will take you a long way when the cancer diagnosis is read over you by your physician. That will take you a long way when you bury your father, your mother. That will take you a long way when that business that you have so scrimped and saved and given everything of your life into, now begins to break away. And you think, oh, this is everything. This is my life. It'll take you a long way if that child turns and moves away from the things of faith. It'll take you a long way. God is in this. God can do this. Lastly, sixth, that every bit of our salvation is ensured by God's grace. And it cannot, it cannot, it cannot be undone. If you are in Christ, you are safe. The adversary cannot have us. And as the Father promises to save us, he waits for us. And we have nothing to fear. So Paul asks them in verse 31, what do you say to these things? What then shall you say to all these things? What do you say? Your heart leaps, doesn't it? If you're a Christian, Something as I'm preaching this word, that's me, that's mine, that's my father, that's my heritage, that's my safety, that's my Christ, that is everything given for me. And so what we say to Paul's question is, thank you. Thanks be to God. Thank you, God, that you called me, that you purchased me, that you saved me, and that your spirit lives in me. We begin just as we sat down on this passage and we say, thank you. A heart of thankfulness, that's where we first begin just here. It's what God does for us. It's what we give back to God. You know, the Christian who is an unthinking Christian is always ungrateful, isn't he? The Christian who is unaware of what it cost God to secure her salvation is the ungrateful Christian. He or she cannot recognize that it was very costly to have this salvation. And so when we look at all these things, we cannot but offer up to God a thankful heart, a grateful heart, a heart which says, Oh God, I want to serve you. I want to follow you. Help me to do it. There is an old British preacher by the name of Matthew Henry. Some of you have probably got his commentary and you look through it from time to time. He says, when you look at all that God has done for his children, you come away with this sort of assessment. It's God who chooses. 
It's God who redeems. It's God who secures. It's God who promises. It's God alone who saves. All that God is and has and does, he does for his people. That's not a majestic thing. God is returning one day in the person of Jesus, isn't he? And Jesus will come back as judge, won't he? And he will be filled with wrath and indignation, won't he? He will, but not against us. Not against us. He loves us. The Bible says in Zephaniah that he rejoices over us. What do we say to all these things? Thank you, God. Thank you. Let's move to a second point of observation. Will you with me quickly? From this grateful, thankful heart, let's move to a place of confidence. It's ours in the scriptures as well. Again, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If there's ever a place where confidence should set down on your heart, it's here. God isn't against you. God isn't listing as a litany against you your sins. God has undone those by the blood of Christ. He's forgiven. He's drawn you close. The Holy Spirit whispers in your ear, as he says in the Old Testament, this is the way. Walk in it. He's the good shepherd, tender, bringing us alongside. He has us in his hand. The adversary wants us, but Jesus promises, no one takes the sheep out of my hand, and no one takes the sheep out of my Father's hands. That's confidence. If God is for us, who could be against us? It's absurd to think that anyone, anyone can undo the plan of God. The psalmist felt this as he was writing under the inspiration of the Holy, Scripture, uh, Holy Spirit as he wrote the Holy Scriptures. Psalm 103, verse 19. Don't turn there, just listen. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens. His kingdom rules over all. There are no exceptions to the reign and rule of God Almighty. No one, but no one, tells God what to do. God is sovereign. God decides. God decrees. God gets his way. Because God is God. So how will you answer Paul's question? If God is for us, who's against us? And the answer is obviously no one's against us. Do you believe that in a personal way as we apply these scriptures? If this is just a knowledge not a doing. If it doesn't change you, it's no good. Then it's just a service. It's just a pep rally. It's just getting together with people who are like-minded. But the Holy Spirit's great desire in us is to change us. As it says in the book of James, not to just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. So our members are changed. So we think differently. So faith fills our heart. So when we are approached by suffering and hardship, in all these things, we say, God is enough. Just like Bartu Aran said, God is enough. Put me in the cold water. Go ahead. You may kill me, but you cannot hurt me. No one. No one can hurt us. The psalmist again, God will perfect that which concerns me. Does that fill you with confidence? Feeling the security? 
Nothing can undo God's will for your life. If you're a believer, you rest in confidence. There's not a person. You say, oh, you don't work for my boss. <laughs> you don't have my mother-in-law. You don't have my father. You don't have, you fill in the blank. You don't have my condition. You don't have my sickness. You don't have my debt. You don't. God will perfect that which concerns me. You know, you, when you think about that verse and you're running it through your mind, when you're meditating on Scripture, that's what we all have to do. That's how we get the meat of this into our system, right? When you're meditating, meditating on that Scripture, Psalm 138.8, scratch out the personal pronoun me. Stick your name in. God will perfect that which concerns Mary, Bill, Timothy, or Margaret, or whatever. Make it your own. Rest on that confidence. Faith is not a feeling. Faith is like a muscle. You know, if you leave your muscles alone, they just go away. Have you noticed that as you get older? <laughs> it's terrible. I've got a son who's a strength conditioning guy, and when you hug him, it's like hugging a steel girder. There's no soft spots at all. It's just he hugs me, and there's soft everywhere. Hard, strong muscles. How do you get that way? You use them. Faith is a muscle. It's not a feeling. Faith is taking God at his word. Faith is necessary to set down and live this confidence. You use faith. You grow strong, hard, large. Paul drives his point home. He won't leave the Romans alone. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? There's that choosing again, that confidence, that resting. I'm not, just, I'm not just someone out here. God adopts me. He adopts you. Welcome to my family. Now, now, he puts the ring on our finger. Now he puts the robe of righteousness on our shoulders. Now he puts the gospel of peace on our feet. Come, live in the family. We're the elect. Who's going to bring a charge against God's elect? Who's going to condemn? Pencil in your answer. No one. You've got the, this exam down cold. No one. No one can resist the Almighty. And yet, despite this great confidence that we should have, anxiety crosses our doorstep. It comes knocking. We look out the peephole and we see out there and we think, I'm not opening the door. We shake in our shoes. We're not like David, you know, but we think that way. Oh, Goliath, this thing is so large, so big, it's a behemoth. I've just got five little smooth stones in my bag, that's it. No, that's not David. He's the picture of confidence, you remember? Running towards that giant. He's not retreating and making a shot, he's running towards him. You come against me with sword and shield. I come against you in the name of the Lord. This is this great confidence that we can have. But sometimes you and I are our worst enemy. Sometimes doubt and unbelief threaten to shipwreck our faith. That can only happen if we let them. If we don't rely on Christ. If we don't listen to the call of the Holy Spirit. If we don't rest secure in our faith. You say, yeah, but when I get that anxiety... I 
I, I can't remember Romans 8, 31 through 39. I, I become undone by it. Undone by it. I know. I know. Doesn't mean you're an unbeliever. You've got to exercise your faith. It's Jesus asleep in the rear on the cushion, you remember? In Mark's gospel, the boat is being thrown back and forth and back and forth, and he is just resolutely quiet. Master, do you not care if we perish? What an awful thing to say. (laughs) It would have been, Jesus, help me. That would have been better. But don't you care? Don't I care? Goodness, yes, I care. And what does he say? Where is your faith? Why don't you exercise your faith just here? Perfect opportunity. That's us. That's us. We struggle. We struggle. Even the strongest of believers from time to time will feel a lack of confidence. But in all these things, God is for us, not against us. We are his elect. We are his own. I very much appreciate the advice of Elizabeth Elliot. Now with the Lord, she says... Do not dig up in doubt what you have planted in faith. You got some things planted in faith? See a bunch of little ones in this congregation. They're your your little seedlings, aren't they? And you're hoping, you're hoping. My garden has erupted after these four days of rain. I mean to tell you. There's our little seedlings now. We're hoping that all will go well. Have faith. Don't dig up in doubt what you planted in faith. Yeah, but what if they turn against the faith? What if they turn against me? You stay strong. Who brings a charge against God's elect? No one. Who brings a charge against those who are God's own? No one. Sometimes things don't go well for us, but the Heavenly Father is promising us good at every turn. So what do we do? Well, When doubt and fear poke their heads into your life, pinch them off. (laughs) Pinch them off. I'm God's child. God loves me. God has given his son for me. What do you do in the midst of doubt? You run from it? You put it on the back burner and just let it simmer? Oh, I'll be fine. Till it boils over in a mess? Or do you embrace it? Do you run towards it? Remembering Romans 8. God is for me. He's not against me. I've been purchased by the blood of Christ. All will be well. All will be well. Look at verse 32. You say, well, I'm shaking my shoes just today. What Paul reminds these people when they've come up against anxiety. He writes in verse 32, He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also graciously give us all things? When you begin to doubt... When things threaten to overtake you, Paul says, remember, God didn't spare his own son. He gave him up for you. How's that for proof of God's love? How's that for a confidence builder? He doesn't have to, but he does. He gives his own son willingly, without hesitation, so that you and I don't suffer. The cross is God Almighty's greatest statement of love to you. With each and every step, Christ is saying, Children, you're mine. Children, I love you. Children, all will be well. He goes on from this point. How will he not also graciously give us all things? What what are the things? Jesus dies, I get salvation. Although there's more. 
Jesus dies, I get adoption. Oh, but there's more. Jesus dies and I become sanctified bit by bit, day by day. Oh, but there's more. The promises of heaven, joy in the Holy Spirit, growing and persevering towards grace. All of these things are ours. All of these things are our confidence in Christ. One further point and we're done. We are thankful. We are confident. We're also free. Look at this last bit of this reading from verse 35 following. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he has this litany of awful things. Shall tribulation? And the answer is no. Shall distress? No. Persecution? No. Famine? No. Nakedness, danger, sword? No. And then he gives this incredible observation. As it's written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Our beginning story with Bartu Aran was sobering. But you and I don't know suffering like that. We haven't lost jobs, I assume, because we're Christians. We haven't lost mates because they refuse to submit to Christianity. We haven't lost opportunities or education. We haven't seen our loved ones carted off to prison and from the back of the paddy wagon. I'll be praying. That's not our situation at all. But Paul knows that. And so on top of that, he reminds us these things, that God's love is in effect, God's love is effective in keeping us from these things. He tells the Romans, you're free. You say, but I've not suffered like that, Pastor. I can't find a freedom like that for me. Oh, you can. Because there is a second list that follows on the tail end of this first list. You saw it just there further on. Tribulation. Distress. Persecution. Famine. Nakedness. Danger. Sword. And then still further, angels. Principalities. Powers. Heights. Depths. Every other created thing, even life and death. Ah, that's it just there. Death. Have you ever struggled with death? Wondering what it will be like? I've had the incredible privilege of standing by the deathbed of numbers of people and watch them go into eternity. It will change you forever. What do you think about your own death? You think these thoughts like I think. Will it be painful? Will I be ready? <laughs> Will I have said all my goodbyes? Will I have done all the things that I wanted to do? Will I get that bucket list done, that last item on there? Will I be afraid? And Paul, by way of this text, tells us, Oh, loved one, for all that God's doing, be thankful. Oh, loved one, for all that God has done, be grateful. Oh, for all that Jesus is in you, be afraid. Be free. Paul declares by the Holy Spirit that none of these things, not even life, not even death, can separate us from the love of Christ. Do you know that freedom? I want to close with a story about a Christian from a small town in Scotland called Eyre. He lived in the 1600s, so far earlier than we could identify with, but the way he died, the way he died, that's the compelling thing. His name was Hugh Kennedy. 
He had a number of Christian friends around him when he's dying. I hope I die that way. don't want to be hooked up to tubes in a hospital. I want to be in my bed with my children and those who love me around me. That's Hugh Kennedy, just here. When he was dying, he called for a Bible. He tried to read the Bible, but unfortunately, in those final moments, I assume his blood pressure was decreasing and there wasn't enough kind of perfusing his eyes and he couldn't see. His, his, the room was fading and so he, he couldn't see and finding that his sight was gone, he said, turn me to the 8th of Romans. That's our text. Set my finger at these words. I am persuaded that neither death nor life. That's our text. Now he says, is my finger upon them? And when they told him, it was. Without speaking any more to them, he said, now God be with you, my children, I have breakfasted with you, but I shall sup with my Lord Jesus this night. We are free. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. What shall we say to all these things? Thank you. Confidence. Freedom. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do not come by this thankfulness, this confidence, this freedom, except at the price of the Lord Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his blood spilled on our behalf. And there is no having him except through faith. And I would pray even now, as the Spirit has stirred me, as I've looked into the eyes of every face in this assembly, that one which does not have Christ, O oh, Father, press upon them this day, this evening, that they might come to a thankfulness. They might come, O oh, Father, to a confidence. And they might come through the Lord Jesus to a freedom. This I pray in Jesus' name and for his sake and glory alone.